Welcome to episode two of the second season of Subaltern Speaks. My name is Christina Shiptahal, and I am your new co-host for this season. Subaltern Speaks is a podcast created by the Multifaith Center at the University of Toronto for Spiritual Study and Practice, where we explore the legacies of colonialism across religions and spiritualities of colonized peoples, otherwise known as the subaltern in post-colonial studies. Joining me today is Karima Rahman to discuss Muslim Indo-Caribbean representation in solidarity and what it means to be a part of the Muslim Indo-Caribbean diaspora in Canada. Karima self-identifies as a Muslim Indo-Caribbean descendant of indentured laborers from Trinidad and Guyana. Karima is the founder of the Muslim Indo-Caribbean Collective and Muslim Indentureship Studies Center. She is currently pursuing her PhD in policy studies at X University, formerly known as Ryerson University, where her focus is the intersectional marginalization, lack of representation, and anti-Muslim racism towards Muslim Indo-Caribbeans, as well as the marginalization of Indo-Caribbeans and indentured diasporic Indian and South Asian spaces. Karima is also a published author with works ranging from academic to spoken word. Her publications are featured in Two Times Removed, an anthology of Indo-Caribbean fiction, as well as Woken Loud, a faith-based medley of Muslim poetry and spoken word. Welcome, Karima, and thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing? Thank you for having me, and I really appreciate this opportunity to be able to share this space with you, to be able to have these really important discussions. How are you doing today? I am doing well. Thank you so much. Uh, We're coming up on the end of the semester, so I'm (laughs) really excited uh, to get through the rest of the semester. Uh, But yes, thanks again for joining me Uh, today in today's conversation. You know, we seek to unpack Muslim Indo-Caribbean representation and solidarity in Canada. And to give our listeners an understanding of this representation, let's first jump into how representation is established. So with that, can I just ask, who are Muslim Indo-Caribbeans and how did Muslims arrive in the Caribbean and Canada? So before I answer my question, it's also important to ground ourselves and acknowledge that the foundation of Islam in the Caribbean region can be attributed to the labor of Black Muslims, both enslaved and free Black folks who were the first Muslims in the Caribbean. So with that understanding, now that it's important to ground ourselves in unpacking what the term Muslim Indo-Caribbean is before addressing anything else. So Muslim Indo-Caribbeans can be defined as those who self-identify as both Muslim and Indo-Caribbean simultaneously, who are at the intersection of both these identities. And it's usually within the context and positionality of descending from Muslim Muslim indentured laborers displaced by British, French, Dutch, and Danish colonization from Hindustan or what we consider present-day South Asia to the Caribbean since 1838, mm. or descending from indentured laborers who are not Muslim or they themselves more recently chose the path of Islam. So not all those who do self-identify with being Muslim Indo-Caribbean descended from indentured laborers. There are cases of those who left Hindustan to the Caribbean with agency, such as business owners, traders, sailors, and merchants, such as in the case of Barbados, or most recent migrants from South Asia, India, post-partition, so after 1947, who self-identify as Muslim and are located in the Caribbean or their descendants. But since indentureship is such a big part of this history and and unpacking 
that idea of displacement and that colonial displacement specifically with indentureship, we need to understand this context in the Caribbean. It's important to note that approximately half a million South Asian Indian indentured laborers were displaced to the Caribbean. And I choose to use the word displaced rather than arrived or arrival. And I will explain this a little later on. So Hindus are approximately 85% and Muslim indentured laborers, uh, according to the research of Afros 2000, um, has been stated as being around approximately 16%. So Muslims were composed of many intersectional identities, positionalities, and lived experiences. And if I break that down a little bit further, approximately 85% were from Northern India, mainly Northwestern provinces and Ud and the Bengal presidency under the British Raj, mainly present-day Uttar Pradesh and Bihar regions, spoke Indo-Rhine languages such as Urdu, Bhojpuri, Awadhi, etc., and boarded the ships at the Calcutta port and referred to as Calcuttians. Approximately 15% are from southern India, the Madras presidency under the British Raj, and mainly present-day Tamil Nadu and Andhra Pradesh, spoke Dravidian languages such as Tamil, Telugu, Malayalam, and boarded at the Madras, as well as Pondicherry ports, and referred to as Madrasis in the archival documents, which not many know is a problematic racial slur for Southern yeah. Indians. When we are looking at Muslim indentured laborers and their descendants, a majority of them are Sunni of the Hanafi Madhab of Fiqh, or School of Jurisprudence. There are Shiite, Sufi, and Ahmadiyya minorities as well. But these Muslim Indo-Caribbeans then engage in another form of migration from the Caribbean to other locations. And that's really important to notice with saying that Canada, the United States, Europe, such as England and France, and to a lesser extent, Australia, New Zealand, and the Middle East, among other locations, such as across the Caribbean to other Caribbean countries, some even staying on for generations, in search of economic prospects, upward mobility, with Canada as being a very popular destination, coinciding with Canada's more quote-unquote liberal immigration policies in 1960s and 1970s. Yes, yes. So this is important to look at how this is correlating at the same time. Um, and then when we look at since 1908, there has been a presence of Indo-Caribbeans in Canada, which isn't very well known. We do see that there is a presence of, of, of Indo-Caribbeans since that time period, numbering approximately 200,000 in 2014. And with the greater Toronto area having the highest concentration. Now, Muslim right. Indo-Caribbean specifically remained a minority wherever they migrated to, and this includes within the migration to Canada and within the diaspora in Canada. Right. So within the Indian diaspora, what does the term twice removed signify? And specifically, can you explain what this term means within the context of Muslim Indo-Caribbean? Muslim Indo-Caribbean, such as those in Canada, are a community that are considered to be twice removed. It's a diaspora within a diaspora within a diaspora, a minority within a minority within a minority. And Muslim Indo-Caribbeans experience this double dislocation. So they are a part of a double diaspora, leaving mm -hmm. South Asia for the Caribbean due to colonialism as indentured laborers and that type of colonial displacement, but then experiencing a second migration when their descendants migrated from the Caribbean. Also, the countries with the largest and overwhelming main Muslim Indo-Caribbean representation happen to be from Trinidad, Guyana, and Suriname, and that leaves other Caribbean locations invisibilized, which is reproduced in the Canadian diaspora, and that's really important to acknowledge as well. I think there we mm -hmm. can also, you know, include, um, you know, New York and Toronto yes. as being like the main mm -hmm. hubs for Muslim Indo-Caribbean representation, and and not not only just Muslim. Indo-Caribbeans, but Indo-Caribbeans, mm -hmm. period. 
Let's talk about the term itself, Muslim Indo-Caribbean, and where this term derives from. Is this a new term in the Canadian context? I don't think it's as overt, that type of representation. I don't think that there has been a lot of mobility around the term Muslim Indo-Caribbean specifically within a Canadian context. And I feel like um, when we look at Muslim Indo-Caribbeans and the idea of what that that community encompasses, there isn't that much representation within the Canadian context. It's more now knowing that that term exists, and I haven't seen that term ever used. That was something that I basically used when I created the Muslim Indo-Caribbean Collective, um, because I did see the word Indo-Caribbean thrown around a lot and and, Mm. and used in different contexts, but I didn't necessarily see the way that that term Indo-Caribbean was represented as encompassing what I saw myself as being. So that's why I thought it was important to also add the identity of being Muslim to it, because then that adds a different flavor to it. And that starts representing things that are usually unseen when I just hear the term Indo-Caribbean. And there are different ways that Muslim Indo-Caribbean identity or what may encompass that um, has survived in Canada. And um, essentially, it's a lot of the ways that you could see that unfold, I guess, in more overt ways is the way that organizations were created, Muslim organizations in Canada, and how that was created by what happens to be a lot of Guyanese and Trinidadian um, Muslims. Um, so, for example, the, the Tariq Masjid is one of the examples of um, a masjid that was mobilized from the community that happens to be what we understand as being the Muslim Indo-Caribbean community. Okay. And when we're looking at the term Muslim Indo-Caribbean, it's not a monolith. It's not a homogenous group. It's not a community uh, or community that is homogenous, but comprised of multiple intersectional truths, identities, positionalities, lived experiences uh, based on various cultures. I agree a hundred percent. Yes, absolutely. So one other quick thing that's really important to mention is that when self-identification with being Muslim Indo-Caribbean, it's based within a wide range gamut of what each individual believes being Muslim, Muslimness, and Indo-Caribbean, Indo-Caribbeanness is, and what these identities mean to them based on their multiple intersectional positionalities and lived experiences, which are so diverse and nuanced in Canada. And that needs to be emphasized that it, even within the context of Canada, it is very diverse and it's very nuanced. This is very personalized to every single person's lived experiences. And all these identities, they're not a diverse economy where one must choose one or the other and loyalty or authenticity should not be right. less in, in identification with multiple identities simultaneously and no self-identification is quote-unquote more Muslim Indo-Caribbean than another. Can we go back to the reference about Indian Rival Day and the misuse of the term? Why is it important to identify the migration of Indians to the Caribbean and elsewhere during indentureship as displacement rather than arrival? As I said earlier, I choose to use the language of how my Muslim, uh, how my South Asian Indian indentured and, and labor ancestors were displaced to the Caribbean rather than the language of arrival or arrived. And this is the, re- the same reason why I don't celebrate Indian Arrival Day. And I think it's important to have this conversation yeah. that it's problematic to think of Indian Arrival Day as the first day Indians quote unquote arrived in the Caribbean. And when used in this context, what does arrival even entail and how do we know it has been achieved? So when we unpack arrival critically, we never truly arrived. Instead, we are in a process of constantly learning, unlearning, colonial harm, decolonizing, resisting the violent history and intergenerational trauma that we experienced. So instead of celebrating this time, we should radically unpack indentureships, intergenerational 
uh, intersectional intergenerational trauma, how violence of indentureship is reproduced in our day-to-day -day intersectional lived experiences and how it impacts mental health in indentured diaspora and Indo-Caribbean community. Wow, these impacts to identity are crucial to understanding Muslim Indo-Caribbean identity and emphasizes the importance of having these conversations. So thank you for being so thorough in your explanation. One of the reasons I, I chose to do an episode um, on Muslim Indo-Caribbean representation was to highlight what, you, what you've just um, reiterated, what you've just stated, is that identity differs. And mm -hmm. it, identif it, it differs um, based on, you know, not just race, class, and gender, but geographic location. It, it differs um, based on having one parent, having two um, that were descendants of indentured. And, and one of the things I really wanted to highlight is that irrespective of the intersectionalities mm -hmm. um, that create, that are, that are systems of power relations of oppression, um, it's important for all of us to understand, and bearing in mind, I don't specifically identify as Muslim Indo-Caribbean. I do identify as Indo-Caribbean, as I was born in Guyana, and my family is predominantly Muslim, although I have a Hindu last name and was raised in a Christian uh, Christian home. So, you know, myself, even individually, I have various intersectional identities. But I think it's important to just acknowledge for our listeners that if you have, if you identify this way, or if you identify in another way, it doesn't mean you're less less of uh, Muslim Indo-Caribbean. And I, I really want to highlight that for mm -hmm. for our listeners to to, you know, just to um, reiterate the point that all identities are relevant to the Muslim Indo-Caribbean um, representation and identity in Canada. I know that we just touched on Canada a little bit because I really want to just make sure we cover the Canadian context, yes. but to cover the, the Caribbean context as well as being, you know, people, women from the Caribbean rather, in the Caribbean, Islam is uh, represented by Indian, Syrian, Lebanese, and African populations for the most part, um, which, which based, and, and as well as in Canada. And so those, it varies um, identification um, as a Muslim. What do you think um, might be some practices that are specific to the Caribbean um, in terms of Islam? And how might those cultural practices or spiritual teachings and or um, interpretations differ based on geographic location? So, you know, you could jump into whether it's a Caribbean or it's Canada, but I, I'm interested to know how you, how you feel they differ and how they might be similar. If I'm just going to take one example, Casitas, where religious songs are praised are sung by Muslims, this has evolved into a very unique Muslim Indo-Caribbean musical art form that should be recognized and represented as Indo-Caribbean form of music, just like how bhajans and chutney and tassa and tan singing mm -hmm. are recognized as being Indo-Caribbean. So right. Were a musical tradition that were brought to the Caribbean by displaced indentured laborers from Hindustan rooted in Urdu, the tradition of Kawalis, Ghazals, Nats that were popularized during the Mughal uh, period in India. And over time, Qasidas have developed into a unique Muslim Indo-Caribbean expression due to many not having any formal or classical training by an ustad or teacher in this art form. So I learned to sing in Urdu from my mother who won Qasida singing competitions in Trinidad and who comes from a musical family where many members would sing Qasidas. 
And mm-hmm. Urdu, along with Arabic, is significant in Muslim Indo-Caribbean identity. When I think of the sound of Qasidas sung at Quran Sharifs or Malud functions, when I think of Quranic recitations, when I think of my father singing, saying his niyat or intention when performing namaz or prayer in Urdu, or the recitation of the Tazim, um, Ya Nabi Salam Alaika, Ya Rasul Salam Alaika, Ya Habib Salam Alaika, as being examples of being a unique Muslim Indo-Caribbean expression right. of identity. Right. And these Qasidas have been a method of colonial resistance ancestral remembrance, knowledge production by my Muslim indentured laborers, and a form of oral history, cultural memory, continuation of Islamic traditions, a connection with Allah, and being able to deeply connect with my Muslim Indo-Caribbean identity as a form of healing and wellness through an Islamic lens in order to use knowledge from my community and tools from my own community and ancestral knowledge to decolonize mental health rather than relying on Western Eurocentric and colonial understandings of mental health. So it's important to look at how this one act could lead to so many other forms right. of healing um, and a source of colonial resistance and knowledge production among women as well, specifically as a site of resistance against patriarchy by using their agency to promote saying amounts themselves and also in mixed public crowds. So in the same way that the Hindu Mati Kordigdati cultural events are viewed as being a site of resistance against patriarchy, rich mm-hmm. in Indo-Korean music, casitas need to be seen as such as right. well. And at the same time... With the equivalence. That it's another very important yeah. act yeah. of resistance amongst women. And to acknowledge that Muslim Indo-Caribbean identity is not limited to also Muslim overt religious expressions. Instead, Muslim Indo-Caribbean identity is a wide gamut that just happens to include these expressions among others. Right. Being mindful of the time, I think we have maybe room for one more question, Krima. Um, and it, it really encompasses, um, you know, some of your work in the community, and I'll, I'll ask you specifically, but I think it's important to to acknowledge that mm-hmm. indentureship um, and the, I call it the forced migration, I call it the mm-hmm. relocation, because that is what it is, uh, and the creolization of cultures, languages, foods, spiritualities, and religions um, translate into these mixed social and cultural relations for Muslim Indo-Caribbeans um, in the the Canadian di- in the diaspora in Canada rather, and I think it's it's truly important to to acknowledge again you know the different intersectional um, identities um, and that prayers in in one religion um, as a form of resistance or different forms of resistance rather and female empowerment are equally important within Islam, within the Indo-Caribbean uh, uh, identification. So um, again, we could chat for a really long time, but I just want to ask you uh, specifically about community and what community means to you. Uh, you are, I know that you are um, an accomplished spoken word artist. Talk to me a little bit about what the community means to you and how do you connect with community? to not just in your positionality as an academic and um, uh, a public educator, but to, you know, for your personal social relations. Uh, I know spoken word can be very holistic in terms of processing uh, a lot of the trauma, the generational trauma mm-hmm. that I think sometimes is really avoided. And, and sometimes it's not really understood uh, that we carry the trauma of our ancestors. So how do you, how do you connect with community and, and what do you do to unwind? 
Okay, these are all really important questions. So I'll start off with what does community mean to me? And then I'll talk a little bit more about how I connect to it. So it's important to note that I'm talking from the lived experience of growing up in Quebec, uh, which is colonially known as Quebec, Montréal. And I've always had questions of who I am and where I come from uh, while surrounded by French-speaking white people and being one of the few people of color. And I think this question of who I am and where I come from is something that's very popular among those who are either born or were migrated to Canada at a young age. So that's really important to talk about in the Canadian context. The strong hatred towards me for who I am and other Muslims like me for simply being Muslim, it really pushed me closer towards the identities that resonated with me and made me me and created a longing mm-hmm. for community for me. And I think that's where community really started to be important for me is this longing for this community and this this space that I could be me or be more me than I could ever be before. And and one thing for me is that when I was younger, I was never silent. And as a child, I kind of made this decision to follow the path of my ancestors and those who walked before me. So every opportunity I had, I kind of, this was not, these aren't the words, these are the words I learned now for what it was that I did when I was younger. So I did resist colonization and thinking that my ancestors did not resist and sacrifice for me to assimilate or feel the shame rejection of my soul and self that whiteness tries to cast on those who are colonized for simply existing. So when I do resist colonization of whiteness in each action I take, I think of the sacrifice of my ancestors and their resistance each time I choose to assert my Muslim Indo-Caribbeanness and counter what whiteness imposes on me. And so much of this resistance is deeply linked to my Muslim Indo-Caribbean identity and I get my strength from my community. And yes, that's where I look at community. I look at community as being the strength because I was not physically in India. I was not physically in Trinidad. I was not physically in Guyana or around mm-hmm. my Indo-Caribbean community being in, in, in Jojage, what's colonially known as Mahayal. Like I was not around other Indo-Caribbean people. So I physically hold the strength of this community that means so much to me. These ancestors across these spaces, they guided me and continue to guide me in my day-to-day life so that I could unapologetically be me, a Muslim Indo-Caribbean. And that's the way that I set it up. That's the way that I think of community and that's the way that I I look at it. And then how I connect with it is that I have this vision for the future of what I want my legacy to be. And that's simply to make my ancestors proud. And I think of my artistic forms of expression through writing or spoken word as being these mediums of communication with me, my ancestors and future generations. So it becomes a way of immortalizing the journey of unpacking trauma, lived experiences, as well as hope and strength and being unapologetic. Yes. Um, So it's art becomes a way for me to explore who I am, my lived experiences. It's to share my journey of self-identification and art is an expression of decolonization, of reclaiming my multiple intersectional identities and a form of colonial resistance. And that's something that I slowly want to be able to hone into more and more. And I hope that my spoken word, my writing, and I just, the way I experience anti-Muslim racism, silencing, invisibilization, and marginalization as a Muslim Indo-Caribbean in this Indo-Caribbean and indentured diasporic and Indian and South Asian and Caribbean Muslim spaces, that's what influenced me to make my decision to start the Muslim Indo-Caribbean Collective and MISC. Um, On the side, while completing my policy um, studies PhD, so 
it's kind of like I consciously and unconsciously code switched in all these spaces. I was never able to express my through true authentic self. And I felt like I belonged nowhere yet. I'm apologetically me. Mm-hmm. I realized the need for a space where I and others with similar identities could be see themselves and see themselves more thoughtfully represented. And I quickly realized that Indo-Caribbean indentured diasporic Indian, South Asian, Caribbean and Muslim spaces were not built for me in mind or my intersectional identities and positionalities mm-hmm. in mind. So that's yeah. why I can't wait for these spaces, organizations. I can't wait for these spaces, organizations to finally represent me one day. So if these Indo-Caribbean um, organizations or spaces won't or other organizations, then I thought of it as an opportunity for me to also be able to create something that may be important to someone else who may have similar lived experiences. And another really important thing I want to say is that an Islamic lens of decolonization is also at the core of my work and my intentions with starting um, MICCM, MISC, and even in my later work and my artistic work, because I realized over the years that I am inherently acting in a decolonial lens when I practice what's at the core of Islam. And that's something that's not said enough that resisting colonization and oppression and to fight against oppression or to stand in solidarity, to stand up to social justice with Mm -hmm. actions is a part of Islam. So these frameworks of anti-oppression are embedded at the core of Islam and the life and teachings of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, yet many do not put this into action and practice. And that's where that gap is. I I agree a thousand percent. And I think, you know, it's very important to, um, to acknowledge that where you don't have where the spaces are not provided for you, you know, in the West, particularly in you mm-hmm. know institutions of higher learning. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one thing I really like about the multi-faith center because it's a representation of all different spiritualities and, and it acknowledges that because in, in many uh, institutions of higher learning, those spaces are not provided for you. But like you yeah. said, where where the we we carry these various layered identities. And, you know, I, I really commend your work because where this this work in Muslim Indo-Caribbean representation, even Indo-Caribbean representation, mm-hmm. there are there are many scholars before us, you know, being a Caribbean studies student, I'm, you know, familiar, familiarizing myself with various scholars that came before me and paved the way uh, for women like us to speak today but I think it's important to remind listeners that where the spaces are not there that you know part of surviving and part of holding the legacy of our ancestors is to create those spaces Mm -hmm. and if we can't create those spaces individually then that is the importance of solidarity and Mm -hmm. uniting to to come together and create those those spaces that represent um, our, our unique identities. And with that, I just, I just want to say thank you so much. This was, uh, a very in-depth conversation. You did give us, uh, a lot to think about. I, I really hope that listeners within the, um, academic and non-academic rather communities, um, can both appreciate the importance of these discussions is respecting uh, specifically mm-hmm. Muslim Indo-Caribbean representation. And I really hope that this conversation connected, you know, many of the students in terms of finding a space 
here at the Belcher Speaks where you can identify with some of the conversations that we're having because they're really, really important. So I just mm-hmm. want to thank you, Karima. Thank you for your time. Best of luck with all of your endeavors. And I just want to thank our listeners today. Thank you so much for joining me today on the second episode of season two of Subaltern Speaks. Please head to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts to tune into our latest episodes. Next month, please join my co-host Yasmin, where she will unpack Buddhism in the West. Until then, be safe and thanks for joining us.